Listener supported. WNYC Studios. You wake up in the morning, and then what happens? <laughs> oh, put your headphones on, Peter. Uh, uh. Oh, yeah. Come on, put your arms around. <laughs> I want to hug you and hug you and hug you some more right through all these microphone cables. <laughs> Go ahead. I know I'm in the right time, in the right space. Do you feel that? I'm Helga Davis. Have you ever found yourself in a place where you literally stop, you look around, and you say, where am I? I found myself in such a situation recently. And I was walking around. I had champagne I had uh, beautiful art around me, beautiful people. But somehow, my mooring was loose. And I thought, if there were just one person here, just one, I could be okay. If there were one person I could look at and see my own face, have my own values, my own sense of self reflected back at me, I can be here. And then I looked up, and there was my person, Sarah Jones. What was beautiful about the encounter was that we didn't say one word to each other. We looked, we hugged, We found home, and we kept going. Sarah Jones is an actor and playwright who won both the Tony Award and the Obie Award for her piece, Bridge and Tunnel. She is famous for the characters she portrays, but I'm here to tell you they are not portrayals. They come through her. What you need to know about the people who visit Sarah is that they are not here to be played on a stage in front of people. They are here to help us understand something about ourselves, about the country we live in or about the world we live in, about who our neighbors are, who they are, what they think, how they feel. The result of which is an experience that helps us, the viewer, expand our world, expand our imaginations, and expand what we might think we know about the other. This is Sarah Jones. Tell me about this bird around your neck. This bird around my neck represents, first of all, it's fun. There's a. Let's be clear about that. It's a big bird. I have a huge bird. Um, I imagine. Nestled. Nestled really at my bosom. She she can hang wherever she wants. So depending on the outfit, I might put her way up here. Mm -hmm. But today she's. she's She is literally a breastplate, Mm -hmm. which um, protected warriors when they went into battle. And right now I am doing a kind of, um, I hope, good-natured battle with my um, past, future, and present. Not, not, okay, so I want to do this Mm -hmm. because I saw you the other night Mm -hmm. at that party, Mm -hmm. right? And you know when you walk around a place like that, uh, it was a lot. It was a whole lot. And what happened was that when I saw you, I finally, I suddenly said, oh, now I know where I am. Mm. And I didn't mean in the place. Mm. I mean inside myself. Mm-hmm. I said, okay, you're, it's okay. Mm-hmm. Just keep walking around. Do, do whatever it is you want to do here mm. and know that you are home. Mm. I felt exactly the same I had well I'll I'll add the detail that when I arrived at that place headphones were being given out mm-hmm. uh which encouraged 
silence and going inward at an event like that that couldn't have been splashier with the red carpet and I had no makeup on, came in my crazy coat. I've been out all day and I'm watching bold face name after bold face name step up to that carpet. And then Ms. Jones, I was like, oh Lord, please <laughs> don't let anybody see me. It's crazy. And yet the juxtaposition of splashy, splashy flash bulbs and headphones literally designed to help you, you know, listen to your own heartbeat. That's the space I'm navigating. That's what this bird is about. I am in a, what a friend calls, home practice. I am practicing Mm. inhabiting my home within while uh, making peace with the fact that this world outside me is also my home. And I must make it um, a more hospitable place than I sometimes let it be, no matter who the president-elect is at any given moment, no matter what is happening on a red carpet or... I have to be able to find homecoming at any time. The great news is the universe helps me out, like seeing you at that event. And so I had already gotten the – I already had the um, mandate to go inward in an environment like that where it's supposed to oh, hi, air kisses, oh, hi, oh, hi. But I said, oh, wait, I can do this. I can both be in this space physically and maintain fidelity to myself and to my heartbeat. As I move through this space and look at this artwork and bump into people, and I bumped into various people before I even saw you, and a couple of them were my, you know, my family of choice, artists and different people I know and love. And then when I saw you, there was a dropping into my body in a different way, just a recognition of how powerfully you reflect and refract the light of other people because you are so present to your own light. And I was reminded that at my best, I can do that too. I am that too. It was so beautiful and important to see you, but at that moment. Right. But I want to read you your text message to me because this also is, I feel like it's exactly where so many people are mm. with what you, with with the things that you're talking about in the beginning, about being home, about no matter what the environment around us, that we be able to be with ourselves, That's to right. navigate home within ourselves. <clears throat> so here's what you said. I'm walking right through the heart of some reckoning, healing grief, and what I call the relief on the other side. (laughs) So intense. And I am willing. Sending love for wherever you are on your path at this moment. Mm, I text like that, huh? Yeah, baby. What? Um, They know about you. Yes. Mm. You know, I can text you like that because you speak and sing and write and emote in this way that is exactly, you know, I identify deeply with you because when I say I am walking through the heart of relief, and it's a made-up word, but I know that you have that word within. I think everyone has these colors within them, but some of us have been on a journey that – I don't want to say forces, but invites in a forceful way. Insists. <laughs> insists. That's insist? good. Let's do insists. <laughs> I was going to go all the way to like entreaties, you know, uh, <laughs> implores. Um, but yes, these experiences, the idea that we are the, a composite. I mean, I was joking about intergenerational trauma. It's but not ain't a joke. funny. Right. It's not really that funny. It might funny. be a joke, but it's, it's not, not funny. It's not really that funny. And I started to mention you, you know, it's a pity you come so black, right? And I have my own version of it's a pity you come so fill it in. You know, why am I so tall? Why am I not white? You know, why don't I look white like my mother? Why don't I have that hair? I mean, and the hours and hours of life spent in this pitched battle with myself um, and then coming through that and when I say coming through, I mean just having a new relationship to it, right? Because it it do, it don't stop. Thank you, Puffy. It don't. <laughs> it's just that I keep adapting to, you know, every morning I wake up new. 
And every morning, the same, what do they say, 125,000 thoughts that went through your head yesterday are probably going to go through your head again today unless you actively choose new thoughts, new experiences, um, and a new way of befriending yourself around all that history. Am I too black? Am I too tall? Am I, and you know, I've. To anything. To anything. And I, what's funny too is. Too smart. Too smart. Too, too uh, capable. How dare you shine? Who do you think you are? I mean, there's so much of it. And what I find fascinating is. You know, I was married to a white guy for a long time. I got to hear, and I've dated quite a few. I've dated around the the ethnic spectrum a little bit. So even this idea of gender and this idea of ethnicity as, you know, the society at large may create a hierarchy and privilege certain people over others. But that internal dialogue, uh, monologue, dialogue, whatever it is, it ends up being a dialogue, right? Because it's the voice of the internal parent, whether you got that from your actual parents or magazines or whatever it may be, that says, you're not enough. You're not okay. You're too much. You know, you're white. Therefore, you should have done better by now. What's wrong with you? I find it fascinating that we could all have a conversation about self-alienation and what does it look like to find a way to befriend yourself in spite of the self-talk of, you know, years or even decades that tells you you're, you know, you're inadequate in some fundamental way. But I, and, and in addition to this, I feel like the part that really causes us pain, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like really causes mm-hmm. us pain, is that there is a part of us that knows better. yes. Yes, from from birth, we have an innate innate self love. I mean, we all have. That's it's what it's where the schism comes from. When you're standing there and you're Helga Davis and you are in a mirror looking at your magnificence, but somewhere there's a whisper that says, "Pity you come so black." It's almost like cognitive dissonance. You can't process your own beauty. Um, kind of butting up against this authority figure, this beloved, you know, as a family member. We love these people. And yet, so that, I think it's that conflict. It's the space where art is born. It's the space where deep relationships and connection to fellow creative. And I, I really agree with lots of people out there who I love, but I'm thinking of Liz Gilbert right now because I just saw her. You know, she has that book, Big Magic, where she talks about... Um, creative living beyond fear. And the idea is that everybody's an artist. We're born self-loving. We are born creative. We are born to, as the, I'm quoting everybody now, Marianne Williamson, you know, make manifest the glory of God or whatever you need to fill in there, universe. We are born to make manifest that glory that is within us. And Mm -hmm. it's not just in some people. It's not just in geniuses. It is in everyone. And then we come out into the world and are faced with, I I keep saying intergenerational, but some of us come from, you know, I come from like an under-earning, under-being dynasty. (laughs) People who for generations were like, "Uh uh-oh, is that greatness leaking out? How do I get rid of that? Let me go get high so Mm -hmm. I don't have to feel my greatness Mm -hmm. in the face of people telling me I'm you know, uh, I'm a nigger or in the face of people telling me I'm a woman and so I'm not allowed to become a doctor. My mom, my dad, you know, my grandparents, our forebears, so many of them, whether it's the Irish potato famine, whatever these geopolitical stories are, are playing out in family dynamics to this day. I still save plastic bags like my depression era grandmother. I'm I'm in the four seasons, you know what I mean? I'm I'm in some hotel pulling out, you know, a Ziploc bag. They're like, ma'am, can we, um, can we help? We could deliver you. No, I'm just going, this is perfectly good. I stood online at Whole Foods for this. You know, I just. I'm going to recycle, I'm going to recycle. And it probably has to do with, you know, stories that have nothing to do with 2016. Nothing. 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 This this is a story from. Nothing. From 1916 that is still playing out a hundred years later with me and my Ziploc bags in a hotel lobby. (laughs) I'm glad I could laugh about it because it's a little bit embarrassing. (laughs) I'm working on it. I'm working on it. We don't laugh because it's funny. No, we we don't. We laugh because it's true. We laugh because it's true. Thank you, Sekou. (laughs) Thank you, Sekou Sundiata. Oh, I just missed him in a really deep way just now. He introduced me to the phrase, the Thoreau phrase, 
companionable solitude. Mm -hmm. And I will be gosh darned if that didn't help me um, get through almost all of my biggest, most painful moments have been the homecoming where you come home and realize, oh, we need a DIY up in here. This home has been neglected and is and is in danger of being condemned if we don't come in here and do some deep um, inventory work. What's here? What's going on? Who am I really? Not out there, not in public, but who mm-hmm. can I come home to? And if it looks broken and like the floorboards need you know, some addressing and all of this, I need to take the time and I need to turn this into companionable solitude. And from there, I can write. And from there, my characters, I told them, I was like, this is going to be me and Helga time. So you all can't come out and talk. And they said, are you sure? I can't even just appear for a minute. I'm a fan of Helga Davis, Einstein on the beach. Are you kidding me? I can't come. I can't come and visit. Is it, what is this some kind of punishment? I don't understand. So here I am. Uh, She didn't ask me, but I get to sometimes... I need to come home too. It's not only about Sarah Jones. All right. So, but the, but they actually, my characters bring me home. Yeah. When I'm really wandering, I can remember being backstage in some big fight with my producers or whatever's <laughs> going on. And Miss Lady, the older homeless character, yeah. she's a woman who's homeless, and she will come out and say, are you about to sit there and cry and be mad at some white people? First of all, you got white in you, so you're going to have to let that go right now. You How know? about that? And then on top of it, is, uh, is you going to sit here and cry when you warm and you got a bed that mm-hmm. you're going home to tonight that's your bed and you can yeah. lock the door and be safe? Don't you dare sit there and cry. Yeah. And I need that. I need them to get me out of my yeah. self-pity, my, my mishigas. I want to ask you a question that I asked Kara Walker when I met her. Mm, love her. I was in her studio. Mm. I went there. This is the first. She's the first person I ever spoke with in this way. Mm. And I don't know whose idea it was to send me. Mm. Yeah, you <laughs> know where to did. start. You know where to start. <laughs> they did. Yes. And I went into her studio, and I was looking at the garbage. Mm. It was the year that she had her retrospective at the Whitney, and it seemed to me that the garbage was as beautiful mm. as what what was finally celebrated, put right. on the walls. Right. And wow. I looked around, and then I sat down, and I looked at her, and I said, what happened when you started making money? Mm. Mm. That's a great and question. And she did not even... Breathe. She said, I got divorced. Woo! Woo! Wow. And I hadn't expected that. Right. But I asked the question because I was aware of the enormity of all that had been mm. sacrificed, Woo. all that that had been made and neglected mm. and and pushed down mm. in order to arrive at this huge moment mm. of celebration. Mm. And everyone can be there for the celebration. Like, that's easy. Yes. Right. 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 It's the byproduct. It's that. It's it, the day after. Right. Or the 30 years before. I was going to say, it's the... It's the <laughs> that little the few decades running up to the celebrate and so you said earlier that you had been married which i didn't know yes i was married and then something started to happen with your career Mm -hmm. and then what happened with you you know i i identify with and i want to start by saying the person to whom i was married is a is a lovely soul and i was married for five years but we were together for ten and those were my, you know, I was, I was doing it. I was, um, I went to, I did my first off Broadway show. I did uh, Bridge and Tunnel. Well, I did a few shows before. Before, and I met this person um, right when I was like starting to do my thing. And I need to say, I have always had this fraught relationship to fame. 
Mm-hmm. And to celebrity notoriety, hi, that hierarchical feeling of A list, B list, all letters all the way down. And I, my, I love my dad. He's a wonderful character, um, very complicated. And one of the complications was this um, focus on fame and um, <clears throat> recognition, uh, prestige. And I understand now. Like to grow up as a black man in the South in America at precisely the time he did and be the only black man in every class. People, uh, my friends would joke and call my house. Well, they wouldn't joke, but they would call and say, you know, my dad would answer the phone and they'd say, I thought your mother was a white one. <laughs> First of all, my mom's not white. She's <clears throat> she's mixed. She just looks totally white. But my dad would answer the phone. I'm, I'm, oh, there, are you calling for my daughter? I see. Well, is there something I can? Uh, we should really talk about before just before? I'm not, I'm not just going to let anybody in here. Let's uh, have a little vetting process. That's he was right, such dad. a character. And he was, yes. That's right. Yes, and he grew up in Baltimore at a time when segregation and anti-Semitism were, you know, the, this confluence of all that prejudice meant Jewish kids had limitations around where they could be, lots of restriction, and so did black kids. And so he would be in a class that was all Jewish kids and him. And he was very identified with his classmates. And and so he was sort of this Jewish kid trapped in a black man's body in a strange way. (laughs) Anyway, that we could do, that's a whole show. But the point is, I remember that he always wanted to be other than what he was. Um, it felt like even within the rubric of inferiority, he was inferior to the inferior to somebody else who was a little bit more superior. And what a what a deep scar to leave on a human soul. And I feel like we as a country are being invited right now to humble ourselves, to look at just how often we are inflicting this horrific spiritual disfigurement telling people that they are either above or below. And I need to be clear, telling somebody they are superior is dehumanizing them. Well, yeah, that's why I have to bust out my Jimmy Baldwin right here. Do it, girl, please. It's always a good time for Jimmy. Hatred, which could destroy so much, never failed to destroy the man who hated. Mm. And this was an immutable law. Period. 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 The end. Can we make that our new declaration of independence? Because uh, the old one broken and mm-hmm. ain't working. And I feel like our independence as individuals, as community, and as a country, like we are going to continue this dependency on what feels to me almost like a collective emotional disturbance. Like we are a collectively emotionally disturbed society because none of us are honestly reckoning with what privilege, what and disfigurement results when you tell anybody that they are superior to anybody else and when you tell anybody that they are inferior. It's just, you know, contagion from there. And unless you get to the root of that, the root, the heart of that, um, we will keep putting Band-Aids on this mess uh, that we we find ourselves in, and when you put band aids over, you know, gangrene long enough, this is what you get. You get where we are right at this moment, and everybody's going, "Oh my god!" And I'm like, mm, "We've Not been so slapping, much. yeah." <laughs> so, you know, you just been looking at the wrong community. Mm-hmm. You know, if you watch a film like Thirteenth, it will help you understand just where so many of us, three million people disenfranchised, you know, locked into a system that basically is a de facto, uh, you know, reconfiguration of slavery. It's ridiculous. And you yet, can't even talk to me about 13th. Ooh, girl. It's a, oh, I because mean. Because I watched it. I was in Italy. Oh, God, you watched it while in Italy. And the interesting thing about being in the situation I was in in Italy. First of all, I was working with someone who was really my family, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and he and his partner, like their entire family have adopted, have adopted right. me. Right, you are just... I go to dinner, there are 15, sometimes 20 people around a table, everybody screaming. It's just it's just like being with, with the Caribbean people. <laughs> It's, exa- it's the same. Slightly different accent. Same dinner. Same dinner. Same dinner. Hey, and they, they have an idea mm-hmm. of America mm-hmm. that has been completely shattered. Oof. 
Mm. But uh, it's right. not uh, possible for uh, oh, uh, oh, uh, uh, mm, <laughs> that you. Uh, but Elga, but, but tell uh, me, the, is how is it possible uh, that uh, you are uh, put uh, uh, tr- a Trump? Trump, uh, it's uh, not possible. Uh, ma like, no, yeah, no, yeah. And here's here's a little documentary for you. Yes, to help you understand. Ooh who I am right. in my country. Right. And and the part of it that is bitter for mm. me mm-hmm. is that I'm sitting with these people mm. who love me. Yes, that's right. They do. That's right. And it is my work to receive that love. That's our work, Helga. That's our work. And to receive it in spite of not even just in spite but can i accommodate the vicious dehumanization that my own neighbors loved ones family you and i can both you know i i don't have All to go very long. far to find All white relatives long. who you know would All day might, long. right and yet that um the the willingness i mentioned that word willing cuz willingness is everything I, it is i would be very justified as would you we could be very angry and sister solange who was on your who was on helga and who was so um i mean she's just such a a powerful um and grounding energy for you know for someone who could be this really floaty presence in the world she i i just felt fortified by her and listening to her and she talks about you know being mad and i got a lot to be mad about and i am reminded that i get to accommodate that i get to hold space for that anger i better because if i don't you know what do they say? i mean it's, it's resentment it's re, resent you know sentire right the italian uh, not the italian the latin to feel the same thing over and over again resent keep feeling that anger if i let that be the drip that's in my veins no matter what you're doing it might be totally justified uh, f- for me to be this rageful. I might be carrying, and I am, right? We are carrying, as Zora Neale Hurston said, you know, the nigger woman is the mule of the world, right? The the the, <laughs> the, 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 the Negro man <laughs> takes that burden and passes it down to her. That's that yeah. old, old wisdom. And yet, if, you know, resent, what do they say? Resentment is like drinking poison and waiting for the other people to die. Right. And I, I, I cannot and I will not. So I am willing to find that space of deep love around that table with my Italian chosen family. And when they say, Ma, no posso. Eh, no, no, no. Non è possibile. El, elga non, non piace <laughs> acciughe. <laughs> that's right. That's right, Mama. Helga does not like anchovies. <laughs> Thank you. Sometimes that's all the Italian you need. Yeah. Grazie mille. Si. Uh, a dopo. That's, si. all, that's how I get out. That's Just say good. later. And then, <laughs> then I don't have to keep talking. But like we get to be loved. We get to be love. We get to be loved. We get to love others, whether they are capable of receiving that love or not. And even in the face of unspeakable harms done by others, I I mean, it sounds, you know, it's almost reductive now. Everybody goes to him when you think about this. But Mandela sat in a jail cell for 27 years and, and bestowed love upon his captors till the day he was released and then became their president. I do I love that story on yeah, all here's, days. Here's not, not on my on my best <laughs> okay. days I'm like that's wonderful. <laughs> on my other days I'm like why didn't he stab one of those motherfuckers in the neck uh, at some opportune Ooh. moment? How was there not a or single the day moment? I just I want to break some shit. <laughs> I, know, I, I know. I that's what I want to do. I, know, I want I know. and I watch too <laughs> when my energy gets very leaky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, like yeah, I was yeah. leaky this morning mm-hmm. and I know I have something going on. <sighs> So I walked out of my apartment building mm-hmm. and I began my good morning ministry. Mm-hmm, yes. And uh, <laughs> a few people, they were plugged in, so mm-hmm. they didn't hear me. Mm-hmm. Um, my neighbor, Miss Mac, mm-hmm. said, good morning, honey. Mm-hmm. And I started to tear up. Yes, babe. Yes. And then uh, I passed Glassman Mike, mm-hmm. who called me sugar. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about a person who works here, mm-hmm. 
who calls me Sweet Pea. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I just started to cry. Yes. I'm sitting right on the subway and weeping. Yes. And I realized that, and I said, well, why are you crying, mm-hmm. Helga? Mm-hmm. And I said, because I'm not feeling, it's, it's, it's an indication to me how I'm feeling about myself. Mm-hmm. And in that moment, I was not seeing myself the way that other people see me, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And so I was having to say, I'm sorry, mm. Helga. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, but I'm angry right now. Yeah. And uh, I'm hurting right now. Mm. And so I need to sit for a moment mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and try and find something to focus on <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> so that this person bumping me with their bag yes. doesn't become the object of the thing that I can't really name right that's now. That's the rabbit hole, uh-huh. right? That's the destruction. That, that is the destruction. Right. 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 And people love to say all the time, it's not about you. Mm-hmm. And we never want to believe that. But that is I, true. I know. I know. We know. We know. Um, And get still Mm. and just say, it's okay. Mm. It's okay. Yes. It's okay. You just gave two of my favorite meditations. Mm. I'm sorry. Mm. I'm sorry, Sarah, or I'm sorry, Helga. And it's okay. And, you know, whether it's Thich Nhat Hanh, I think one of his phrases is, darling, Mm. I care about your suffering. I mean, I spent a lifetime feeling the opposite of that was true. And that it sort of there's sort of this meritocracy, you know, there's this world in which the less I the less I am soft and feel um, into that that place you just described, being able to be present enough with yourself to say, hey, Helga, what's happening? Most people don't check in like that. They would think you're crazy to even, you know, have a moment of connectivity with yourself um, the way you would connect with a friend, a beloved right. friend. But who needs to be who? Who better to make sure you are checking in yeah. with than yourself and yeah. letting it be all right that you, yeah, that you that your heart um, is available and undefended, right? Like d- this illusion that defense works. It at all it does is the more armor I get, the more I need, and so then my entire experience becomes about up armoring a little bit better today than I did yesterday because I put on the, all that armor on and I'm still hurting. So I guess that means I need more. No, mm-hmm. it means let go, check in, say, "Wow, I'm hurting," and as it turns out, it wasn't just people stepping on my sneakers. <laughs> it's the way I react. Mm-hmm. to you know the the these transgressions and how i make them transgressions wow thanks for stepping on my sneaker you showed me that my toes are strong and i can handle it mm. and i wish you a blessed day whatever mm-hmm. that means to you when i do that i actually recharge my own battery right. the if, and this is going to sound crazy but i've been practicing a forgiveness meditation for i'm not even going to say his name but for people who I believe, you know, you said this on your podcast, and I love this pithy little phrase, hurt people, hurt people. Mm -hmm. But guess what? Free people, free people. And if I can find the space within where I am free no matter what, where I am the Mandela of my own, on my own scale, all of a sudden I am, I'm a free radical (laughs) in a good way. I'm literally moving around in the world doing the equivalent of the good morning practice. And by the way, this does not elevate me to sainthood. I'm right. messy. Every, you know, I me still too. get in the car and be cranky if the traffic and the bleh. and um but just to see it, just to have enough space and a pause. Like you said, pause, get still. What is so unforgivable about this moment? What mm. is so unforgivable about this traffic? Oh, well, underneath that, I'm going to be inadequate because I left late and then people will think I'm bad. <laughs> you know, it's always there's fear underneath my anxiety and yeah. judgment of others and fear underneath my anxiety and judgment of myself. So if I can just get underneath that and go, hey, babe, I know you're scared. I love you so much. So much. I love you so much. That's it. You know? I want to ask you too. Where are you finding these people? Is there some 
I, I'm, I'm curious to know two things. Mm-hmm. One, are they coming to you? Mm. Is there a, is there a, a thing that you're saying? And, and, and it, cause I, I don't imagine it's, well, I need to make a new show now. No, no. And so I'm going to go out and look. I, I know it isn't that. Mm. So what is it? Mm-hmm. And then what, what is it that you you have to look at people mm-hmm. very deeply mm-hmm. to do what you do? Mm-hmm. And so I, th- I imagine that even in a casual way, even sitting here with me now, that there's a way you can look at me and tell how I'm feeling mm-hmm. or where I am mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. my in my emotional universe mm-hmm. over here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh. <laughs> the quantum physics of Helga's mind. <laughs> peering into the <laughs> peering into <laughs> So tell me first yes. about your people, the yes. people in you, mm-hmm. as Abby Lincoln would call yes, them. Yes, that's what Abby would call them. Mm-hmm. And uh, so my people all of them, I know, are facets of my own experience, but which I then am privileged to kind of mix up and create an amalgam of some aspect of myself, or I wouldn't be drawn to these people, right? And th- and whoever they are. And I've talked about this with, you know, I have mentors. This is such a funny little field of one person showed them where you play other. So Tracy Ullman, you know, Lily Tomlin. Um, John Leguizamo, these are people I have turned to just to almost understand myself a little bit better. Like, why do we do that? Where do we come from that we do this thing? And Lily said something interesting. You know, she grew up in Detroit at a time when, or I guess outside Detroit, at a time when race and, you know, gender, all of these conversations were swirling around. And she had these two kind of, you know, Southern Western parents uh, who had one way of looking at things and doing things. And then she had neighbors who, hey, baby, what's up? You know, and so when she went to create, I always lift her out because she had, what was the name of her character? Purvis. He's like a Marvin Gaye type. When she does Purvis, it's not white Lily Tomlin. There's something else happening there where she, some aspect of Lily is like, is m- melding with a deep blackness. And I was like, oh, like it, because for a long time I was like, well, I'm, as a person of color, I can get away with playing anybody I want to, but don't you dare be a white person coming up in here trying to, you know, appropriate. Okay, we got, it's not a podcast unless you say the word. Can we get intersectionality in here at some point? I think we've got that. Okay, great. (laughs) And we've said space several times, which I noticed I pepper my speech. Yes, I'm in this space. They're like, we just want to know what your order is. I'm in a space where I'd like arugula. Uh, goat cheese. So, all right. So, the, so Lily. So, all of that. My people. They are my family. I find them. I do find them when it's time to write a show. Sell by date is the show that I'm in, that I'm living in right now, and it's about all of this. It's about this conversation that we're having today. It's about um, you know, ostensibly, it's about women and sex work, quote unquote. And I put sex work in quotes because some people would call it commercial sexual exploitation, not work, right? Um, And I want to, I create space for all of that in the show. And we meet an English woman who is the, um, she's sort of, you know, the sort of picture of detachment, right? I mean, just by virtue of how we speak, we're just sort of saying, oh, I'm here, but not in any way that should disturb anyone. Um, While I, you know, excuse me, while I sort of shrink back from my implicit privilege. <laughs> you know, that's sort, uh, of, huh? that's sort of her. But on her journey, you know, I needed to meet people for this particular piece who did for me the same thing my characters have always done. They open me up. They crack me open. That's what they that? do. They force me open because um, I have preconceived notions about people like everybody else. And I have had the privilege of growing up in a multicultural family. And it was normal to have, you know, I had relatives who talk like, oh, Sarah, why? Oh, stop it. You, come on. What do you do? I, I, you're black. You're black. But, you know, you're really more like a caramel color. And then I, you know, I take that and I turn it into like routines. I, tr- I really don't take people's original words. I really do try to rewrite <laughs> stuff. But, but it's normal for me to feel multiplicity as a home base. Mm-hmm. And simultaneously, I think, like many artists, 
um, there's a feeling of separate of separateness, and my art is my bridge back to connection, right? I can feel apart anywhere. I can be in a room with Tracy Ross, and who looks damn near just like me, has the same hair, and you know, uh, a couple of other women. We all look exactly. Uh, who am I thinking of? Uh, Allison Palmer from Betty. There's a bunch of us. I just want to get us all in a room so that we can all look around at each other and be like, oh, yeah, they always think I'm you in the airport. Oh, yeah, they always think I'm you. They always think I'm you. Even in a room where everybody looks just like me, I can find a way to feel separate and apart from. Mm. And I don't know what that is in me, but I've stopped trying to figure it out. Mm. What I've discovered is the antidote is finding myself in everybody, finding the everybody in myself. So in a way, they are my free therapy. They are my rescuers, my comfort, my refuge. And in return, my goal is to get out of the way of their innate dignity and beauty. It was really wonderful doing Sell by Day. Got a lot of beautiful reviews and critical acclaim and all this kind of wonderful stuff, and I'm grateful. And there was one review that was like, oh, Sarah Jones loves her character so much, and we love that about her, but eh. And I just thought, wow, that is the heart of cynicism. First of all, of course, I was hurt. But um, I think when I came, you know, when I was able to take a step back and detach from my own ego's pain, I thought, oh, not everybody believes that all characters are lovable. And I have, uh, my name is Hank. Uh, Helga, I want to introduce myself here. And I want to say that uh, Sarah Jones and I, met, uh, I am a European-American rights advocate. I want to be clear that I do not um, uh, philosophically, if you will, uh, agree with this idea of alt-right and all this kind of thing. That is not uh, where I'm coming from. Uh, And I met Sarah Jones back in uh, 1999. Uh, The Ku Klux Klan came here and rallied here in New York City. And I was here to offer an alternative to white folks who just want to be respectful of their own heritage. That's all. We don't go out for any of that robes and all that's archaic and it's pa- all that pageantry. It's frankly, it makes them ridiculous in my mind. Now, I believe that as a white man, if you can have black schools and all of this that you all are allowed to have, not allowed, I'm sorry, I know that's upsetting for people. If you can have your BET why can't I have W-E-T besides the fact that that word is wet and I don't like the way that sounds? But uh, my point is that as a white man, I argue constantly with Sarah Jones about my right to be a European-American rights advocate. We don't agree. We don't get along. I don't like to go have tea with her and all of this. However, um, I explained to her, you know, I had to mortgage my house uh, for my son, he really wanted to go to agriculture school. I don't know. I didn't understand why he needed that. You know, we've been a family operation for many generations, but this is the economy we're in. I, we are now having to live together, uh, because my, my mother's, we're three generations in one house. Mm. Now I don't care. Sarah Jones says, Oh, you watch different news than I do. I watch the news. I watch the news. I read the paper. And if you're going to tell me that these Mexicans, excuse me, I'm sure there are good Mexicans out there, but when my jobs are disappearing here, when I, you know, when we're, uh, whether it's Rust Belt or wherever you are in the country, I I just want people to understand I am not uh, a complaining white man who hates people. I am proud of my heritage and my race. And you can have a black president and... uh, and that's all fine for you to celebrate his being black. As soon as I celebrate a white president, I'm a racist. I just, you know, I want people to understand uh, that they don't listen to where I'm coming from, and then they want to get upset with me and tell me I'm so I'm I'm uh, superior. Well, I'll tell you what: when they came and repossessed my second truck, how superior was mm-hmm. I? So mm-hmm. why don't you just listen to where I come from? That's what I ask her to do. Just listen to me. So with and it's Hank, such a big thing. It's huge. And he can make me cry. Yeah. I feel his pain. I understand that yeah. if I woke up every morning and read a Gannett newspaper, uh, which most cities in this country have, and for example, recently they had a headline on their national section of their paper, the headline when Mr. Trump settled his lawsuit, his $25 million lawsuit uh, for fraud and all that, when he settled that, their headline said, Trump sacrifices himself for the country. 
Okay, so if that's the news I'm reading, not from some alt-right website, that's a that's USA Today. That says I'm in the USA today. I should read this and trust it. If he's consuming nothing but that information, then of course this is who he is, and he feels fearful. Right. And nobody has ever shown him thirteenth. He right. has no idea that ninety-seven percent of those black predators, quote unquote, super predators. As, as, you know, even politicians we're supposed to love have said Ooh. about us. Nobody has said to him, actually, 97% of those folks are in prison because they took a plea and never got a fair trial in America. Right. If I'm sure that if somebody could sit him down and, you know, give him a, a, a re-education, all of us, mm-hmm. um, it would change the dynamic in this country. But we don't do that. And, and we're not going to do that. And we're not going to do that. As a, somebody who creates characters... My job is to not look away just because it's painful. Hank breaks my heart, but I also feel deeply connected to him. I understand that he is fearful and that he comes from pain. He's coming from a place of pain and defensiveness and really abject terror because that's what's being pumped into his living room. If you, I sit occasionally and watch Fox on the plane for as long as I can tolerate. I do about five (laughs) minutes. It's just for Hank. He needs it. Mm -hmm. I need to keep him primed so he Mm -hmm. can feel what he needs to feel. But, you know, the bottom line is human beings, our reptilian brain, we have a negativity bias already. Mm-hmm. That's our, just our neurochemistry, right? So if you then take that sense of like, uh-oh, a bear might come get me. That's, you know, what's left over there. We transpose that today onto, you know, Mexicans, black people. Uh, and when I say we, I mean they, because I'm a black person. So, <laughs> But this idea that we should be fearful of the other and that we are in imminent danger at all times and must be vigilant. You take uh, a fourth estate that makes money off of that and and there's no checks and balances, no accountability, no requirement of actual facts anywhere and this is what you get. Right. That's where we are. I want to go back to one thing though mm. and it's the question. You you were doing your work. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. I could be here for six hours with you, Helga, mm-hmm. and never even scratch the surface. I'm like, and then, and then another thing happened. Oh, wait, let me tell you about this other tangent real quick. Hold on. Okay, sorry. I'll, anyway, go ahead. <laughs> you start to become known mm. for a thing, Ooh. and things change, and, and things get better. Yes. And then what happens to you? They get better and they get um, – I'm more of me is revealed both publicly and inwardly and it's painful. So I had to look at, oh, I know how to do this so well because I needed to disappear and escape my house. And I couldn't leave my house so I could leave my body by letting some, some other energy inhabit it for a time. And it would just sort of soothe me to go from being me, Sarah Jones, with all my baggage. You know, my family is a beautiful family and a dysfunctional family. You know, we had a lot of – everybody had something to prove. There was a lot of high-achieving, wild-feeling, deep, low self-worth. So the expression I've heard for that is like, you know, narcissists with low self-esteem. Uh, the piece of crap at the center of the universe. We had a lot of those. And so they were like really accomplished. And then you'd be like, wow, great job. And they'd be like, fuck you. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And you'd be like, wait, that doesn't line up. Like you just won the such and such prize. Get me a drink. And I was like, wow, this is really deep. Like when we're not allowed to flourish without, you know, having some sense that you're not worthy. So even if you won, it was a fluke. Or even if you attained this dream, you have to, you know, sabotage it somehow on the other side. I identify with so many artists who share their stories. Thank God, because I thought I was alone in that. So basically, when I got some recognition and, you know, really all along, I have had out of body, not just because I'm in a character, but, you know, performing at the White House and, you know what I mean, and winning a Tony. And these moments, I remember standing on these stages and thinking, is somebody going to come tell me I'm not really supposed to be here? 
And um, I learned, my characters would get me through. And at one point I would do, you know, I was trying out like different TV stuff and it was just too big. It was too big. I could not leave behind. That was the feeling. If I fully allow the uh, true wattage of my light to be released. And I say this with humility because my understanding of humility is you neither make yourself bigger than you are nor smaller than you are. Mm -hmm. So I think I have the same wattage as everybody else. The question is, what kind of dimmer am I on? And I, for a long time, felt um, almost compelled to surround myself with people or energies who would throw a bushel over my light. And I had to really take stock of that as my star rose. And I mean, you know, people I had loved all my life. Meryl Streep got very involved in my career out of nowhere. If you had to, I'm not a trained actor. This was all happenstance and chance and stumbling and fumbling with love. I I say that with love for myself, but I did not know what I was doing. I knew, you know, I went to Bryn Mawr and I knew I wanted to um, make something good happen in the world. But I also knew that I was given to feeling like um, my light wasn't... um, either available to me and then once I realized it was available to me and I was the one with the bushel in my hand when I had cleared out some of those you know bushel folks and then realized wait a minute I'm the only one here and there is nobody else in here and yet it got real dim all of a sudden so I had to do that work of like looking at where You know, as they say, I'm terrified all this time. Oh, the calls are coming from inside the house. (laughs) So I had to be like, "Ah, he's in here with me and it's me. And the good news about that is once you realize you've been the one giving yourself the beat down, not that anybody else isn't. I am not absolving. You know, there's plenty of issues out there, but that's their stuff. When it's time for me to look at my stuff and where it gets in the way of my being of maximum service with my work. That's my job. I'm a worker. My job is to take whatever I've been given and make this um, this experience of traveling with others until I die as beautiful as I can make it for myself and others. Really for them first because then they reflect all that beauty back to me and I can get out of my head and into the collective consciousness where art is made and flourishes, right? So the night I won the Tonys was one of the most miserable, the the Tony was one of the most miserable nights of my life because it was so big and I couldn't hold it. And I felt like I had scrambled to the top of this place without going through Tish and all the places. You know, I was looking around at my fellow actors thinking, they must be like, wow, Meryl just like put her on an elevator and we had to take the stairs, (laughs) you know? And never thinking, wait, what, what if my talent is why... You know, a a beautiful soul like Meryl Streep saw me and saw something in me. What if instead of, you know, seeing these aspects of my life as something with which to diminish myself, what if I see all of this as grace and a chance to just, you know, the next time I'm looking at somebody and going, oh, well, she married so-and-so, that's why she but Notice three fingers pointing right back at me, Mm -hmm. as they say. If Mm -hmm. I'm pointing one out here, there are three pointing back at me. If I spot it, I got it. That's the idea. So, you know, that it, I guess what I would say is it's been a, a, an experience of finding humility very imperfectly, very messily, and with joy. I can be joyful even as I notice, oh, my God, look at how, you know, um, I mean, I watch myself sometimes in large gatherings of very, very famous people. Uh, I, I'm trying to remember I love this person as a person, but there's a part of me that's like a, a fame-seeking you know, device. And I'm, and I, I have to watch that in myself. I actively practice finding a balance between, you know, telling the friends I have who are like that in the world how much I love them and making sure I create space so that I don't look at them as somebody who's supposed to do something for me. What can I do for them, no matter how many Oscars they have on their shelf, no matter how much more money they have than I do, how can I be a loving vessel for some energy that they need and if i can't do that i try i i almost try not to go to those parties because i will i'll be in the picture you know and really inside they can be telling me how much they love me and my work and all i'm thinking is yeah but you got this number of followers and i don't and and it's painful you can't take it in i can't take in the love because i've got this shield up that says i'm less than 
And it's interesting because the distraction that you mentioned earlier, that idea of like somebody's bumping into me on the subway, so I can do a deep dive into that instead of looking at, oh, my heart's aching. Oh, I'm sad. I feel vulnerable. So for me, fame chasing is a distraction. Mm -hmm. Um, Wanting to be skinny. This is a lifelong thing for me. I have been very, very thin in my life. And I realized it's connected to deprivation. It's connected to this feeling of, you know, I need to whittle myself down to a certain size. And I really, I mean, I had a problem. I had a serious problem. So now I eat as a as an act of defiance that says if so some, we don't come in crazy right so right. we don't come in crazy mm-hmm. and also so that you know that voice in my head that uh says oh if i'm a size 2 or 4 i'm a more lovable person yeah ooh i yeah. anything any uh, this sentence applies to so much if this then i am lovable anything that fits in that that you know, little blank spot has to be removed from my life as best I can on a daily basis. And it's such a great lesson for everyone. You know, part of what is so wonderful for me about sitting across from people and having these conversations is this thing where everyone can find themselves in these conversations. Mm. Everyone. Mm. And it doesn't matter what it is that you're doing. Mm. It does not matter. Right. The principles are the same. Mm. And this idea that you would have this career or be this person and so you don't have this problem. Mm. Completely unfounded. I mean, in fact, again, I don't know why this we're quoting Puffy more often than Baldwin <laughs> or anybody else, but <laughs> more money, more problems definitely applied for me. And I ended up giving away a lot of money out of... Um, this sense of and it was it's unconscious i need to say that mm. and i've heard it described as unconscious family loyalty so i come from people who either didn't have enough or if they had enough somehow they would find a way to you know disempower themselves by having it taken away have you know frittering it away foreclosures whatever there was this it's almost like there was this um need to um spend down power like we're not allowed to be powerful we're women we're not allowed to be powerful we're black we're not allowed to be powerful we're from the caribbean we're not allowed to be powerful we're latinos we're you know jewish pick your ethnicity pick your status pick your religion whatever it is some kind of and i don't want to say that every people who've ever come from persecution have this but i have a lot of identification with people who you know culturally or geographically their story is one of fleeing um terror or you know economic insecurity whatever that may be and P.S., the United States is mostly a nation of immigrants who either got here because they were trying to get something or got here because they were trying to flee something. And until we unpack all of that as people, there is this idea of sort of generational heirlooms of pain and trauma and a sense of persecution and fear that aren't even here Mm. today. People escaped pogroms, you know, 100 years ago, but their family members sitting in the fanciest, most beautiful places in the world these descendants are still feeling the reverberations of that pain. And, you know, we just go get Xanax for it today. Right. So I, I'm very interested in, um, you know, how we own our power. How do we stand in our power? And for many of us as artists, there's this lopsided weird thing going on. The theater world is an under-earning uh, juggernaut for most pe- most people and most purposes. This can be true in music. It can be true in – and here's the funny thing, right? We create the work – that moves people, and then other people make all the money. And I really get to look at how I participate in that Mm -hmm. and how, you know, there are systems and gatekeepers and establishments designed to profit from the work of artists without honoring those artists in a deep way. And only a few artists really, really have, you know, economic security. Now, there's a whole bigger conversation for me, which Sell by Date looks at, um, around worth and value and how, as a culture, you know, we just, we don't value life at all. We mm. claim we do. Mm. But, you know, if people, literally, uh, the insurance company makes money off people dying. Literally. They literally make money by making sure they don't have to pay for somebody's pancreas when they need it. 
any system that allows that needs to be radically overhauled, right? And so I guess I'm interested in these intersections of who we all are as people and the descendants of our ancestors, um, who we all are in a capitalist society that is a particular form of capitalism. Hell yeah, make your money. Take care of yourself. Like absolutely be paid for your labor. But for the most part, you know, somebody who makes um, a worker for the average company in whatever it was, 19, in the 1950s, I think the CEO made something like 10 times as much as that worker. Now it's like a thousand times. Right. We are, we are actively um, perpetuating the idea that some lives are worth more than others and that we are perfectly comfortable with that. And the truth is because we are all connected, what we're actually doing is incrementally harming ourselves all day, every day, those of us who are privileged and those of us who are not. Because when you are enjoying that privilege, your soul is still resonating with that pain of that homeless person you stepped over. You think you don't see them, but then you go eat a donut. And I promise you, if you weren't hungry and you shoved that donut up your nose, <laughs> you know, you're in pain. You're in pain, and yeah. you—we do, don't even know why because we tell it. We have myths about separateness. We have myths about who we should fear, who's not deserving, who is just bad and criminal, and so that's why they're in jail. You know, these are the stories that I hope will continue to sustain me and my characters because I want. I just want to. Um, I want us all to have access to the homecoming that we started talking about. And I know for me, I can only speak from my own experience, but other people, you know, do share. And I love sharing like this with you. I don't think I ever talk about weight issues and, you know, that insecurity and feeling unlovable. But here I feel safe to say it, which is an indication that I'm healing from it. And I think as a society, when we can talk about our you know, collective pain and trauma and the ways we have harmed one another and ourselves, that's a sign that we're already on a path to some healing. But when we are up to our eyebrows in social media, and there's wonderful things about social media, but I know I don't always use it well. I use it to compare and despair with other people. Mm -hmm. Ooh, look what she's doing. Ooh, I'm not. And then I know when my stuff's up there and I look all fancy, you know, really, I'm posting that thing. And then I'm going home, getting in my pajamas and getting in the bed and not being glamorous (laughs) at all. But it's this way of not having to come home, not having to really see, not having to really feel the feelings that came up when I stepped over that homeless person. If I just immediately, you know, bury my nose in my phone, all of a sudden, I don't have to feel a thing. It's a fantastic numbing agent. Yeah. And when, when I say fantastic, I guess I mean more like, you know, um, it's it's formidable. And mm-hmm. it's something we really, I mean, I, I look forward in a sort of, I'm a little bit frightened of this, but I'm assuming there are going to be studies soon about what our disengagement with ourselves and other people and our constant engagement with social media and, you know, these projected images of people we, you know, fear and inadequacy and everything that makes you want to run out and buy that new dress. You know, we actually live in a society that benefits from people feeling alienated from themselves and others because then you need a shopportunity. You need retail therapy. And, you know, I'm sitting here and I, I go out there and shop and I love my clothes and I love aesthetics and beauty. Yes, and I want to look at where I choose to numb myself rather than feel what's actually here, rather than see what's actually here. And my characters help me look at what's here. And my work does that. And I think the other piece that's tricky for me, and the characters will always help me with this, is like, like I have, okay, so my name is Nereida. I just wanted to come for like two seconds because first of all, Helga, you are, you know what you are. Everything, girl. Oh, my God. Your voice. But, like, also, I mean, just, like, everything that's happening right now is, like, so beautiful. But, you know, Sarah Jones, like, I told her, you know, I'm I'm half Dominican, half Puerto Rican. And the thing about, like, you know, we're in this time when, you know, people, like, we are so, like, I mean, I love my kids. I love, but I get the stress that I'm having right now, I cannot even... I'm seriously mm-hmm. like, and I know it's Christmas, the holidays and everything like that. And people always have an explanation. Oh my God, it's Thanksgiving. Oh my God, it's, you know, oh my God, it's whatever day. 
the stress. I mean, like, I we joke about this, but, like, I have to say affirmations and stuff like that. And my favorite affirmation is three little words that always make me feel better. Soto mayor, soto mayor, soto mayor. <laughs> but anyway, no, but seriously, though, like, I think there's this thing of, like, we're not allowed to be vulnerable, you know, to say, like, oh, my God, I'm too stressed, mommy. I'm too stressed right now. I can't, like, please take the kids. Like, you know, give me my space right now because I don't think this is a sustainable. What we're doing right now. It's, it's not really working. And I, and I, that's hard to say because then people are like, well, that's depressing. No, it's not depressing. It's like, stop. Stop what we're doing. We have to do something. And like you said, pause and feel something. And that's hard for me. You could tell, like, I mean, you know, I'm not a slow talker. I'm not a slow walker. But I'm having to, like, change myself. And I think we're capable of change, but we have to be willing to do that. It's uncomfortable. It's very uncomfortable. And I, I think that that we have to develop the capacity, a greater capacity for discomfort, for dis-ease. Mm. So that we can we can have that pause and we mm. can see each other and and then we can come home and be safe mm. and and tell the truth. Mm. Isn't that deep that if we just felt safer within ourselves, we would have a whole different foreign policy. I mean, more Americans die from hospital error than from terrorism. You have a better chance of getting killed, stepping off the curb outside your apartment in New York City than you will ever have of uh, some, you know, person with a name that scares you and a religion that scares you, harming you. And yet the, the you know, it's not rational. We don't live in a time of rational thinking. And yet we feel so informed because there's a 24-hour alleged news cycle. Right. And we feel so inundated with information um, that we have this sort of false sense of empowerment and control. Give me your hands. Mm. Mm. There we go. Mm. Mm. Everywhere there is you, there is home. I'm very, very grateful for that. Thank you, Miss Helga. Thank you. I I just want to tell you, we're going to carry this through, all the way through. All of us, everybody who's listening, you, me, we got this. Yeah. Thank you. The more I think I know another person, the more I realize I know the idea of that person. One of the things that I think is important about Sarah's work is that she's really exploring what makes the other and why his or her experience is important, not just to her, but to all of us. She also answers with this work, the question, why do I need to care about the other? And we see through her performances how little we really do know about the other. And how in caring, we actually end up caring more for ourselves. What do you do? How do you extend yourself to people outside your immediate sphere of shared ideas? You can always reach out to me at helga at wqxr.org or on Facebook. This episode of Helga was produced by Julia Alsop and executive producer Alex Ambrose. It was mixed by Curtis McDonald with help from Hannes Brown and original music by Alex Overington. Special thanks to Cindy Kim, Lorraine Maddox, Michael Elsesser, Jacqueline Sincata, and John Chow.